Our passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for the good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went again, away again, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and they believed in him there. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. As we come to God's word, let us begin with a few moments of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it shows us who Jesus is, how you've revealed yourself to us, in real time and space, through actual events that have happened on this earth. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that your spirit would be at work today as we hear it, that it would have its full work in our hearts, that we might be changed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're standing, please have a seat. I was... uh, struck a little bit by the passage we've come to today. Now, as I said earlier, um, there's different ways in which we can follow something like a church calendar and talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And and we've been going through the Gospel of John, and just last week, uh, Jesus talked about how he has the authority to lay down his life for his sheep, and he has the authority to take it up again. Uh, Certainly an, an an allusion to the resurrection that was going to happen. And in the next chapter, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's even going to use the emphatic statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And yet we kind of find ourselves in this in-between passage, and it highlights for, for, for me and hopefully for our church that the resurrection is part of all of Jesus' teachings, that we aren't just speaking about it today. We spoke about it last week, and we will speak about it probably for three or four weeks into the future, not to mention that at the end of the gospel here in John, when we get there, 
we see an account of the resurrection, an eyewitness account of the apostles. And so this is perhaps not a typical resurrection Easter Sunday passage, and that's okay, because it is still God's word, and it still reveals to us who he is, and and it's still living and active, and part of uh, the flow of our church is to continue on and to trust in God's uh, ordinary means that we are finding ourselves here, not on accident, uh, but that God has orchestrated you to be here, me to be here, for us to be doing this in an unusual way through a video because he wants us to worship him. And these words we will hear today are for us. It is no accident. As we look at this passage, uh, I want us to really kind of have one big idea. I think it really brings into focus for us one aspect of, of Christ's ministry to his people, and that is this, that God's sheep are secure in the hand of Christ. God's sheep are secure in the hand of Christ. If you remember last week, Jesus was talking about being the good shepherd. And so he's the one who lays down his life for the sheep, unlike a hired man who would leave when a wolf comes. Jesus is the shepherd who will lay down his life to protect his sheep. And Jesus continues on uh, this imagery of shepherds and sheep. And the, the biggest point here is Jesus wants to assure us of our place in his kingdom. But too often... You and I, as we live our lives, we feel vulnerable. We don't feel secure. Uh, We have doubts and uncertainties. We wonder, who who are God's sheep? Am I one of them? How can I know if I am secure? And these are the questions we want to dig into a bit today. And really, that's our three points that we are going to focus on. And it really focuses in on the first half of our passage. We'll we'll go through the whole thing, but it's really this first half I want us to look at. And we're going to answer these three questions. Who are God's sheep? What does Jesus secure for them? And where should we look for our security? Who are God's sheep? What is it that Jesus secures for them? And where should we be looking for our security? Now, our passage begins by putting us into a historic moment. Uh, Jesus is in the temple at the Feast of Dedication. So the Feast of Dedication isn't one of the Old Testament feasts that you would find in the Law of Moses. Uh, This was actually kind of a new feast that had been instituted because the temple had been overtaken and was being used for idolatrous worship and had After a while of uprising among the Jews, they had recaptured the temple and were able to reinstitute proper worship. And they had this this memory, the feast of rededicating the temple to the proper worship of God. It was a celebration that once this temple was being used for blasphemous purposes and now proper worship had been restored. And so uh, that was this imagery of what's going on here. It's also called the Feast of Lights, and we would know it most commonly in our day as Hanukkah. Certainly nothing that would have been in the Old Testament scriptures to say this is something they must do, but it was uh, new at the time, and, uh, and it had been going on for, for a few years as Jesus comes now, and it would have been a time where there would have been quite a crowd again in Jerusalem. 
we're told it's winter, so we're given this, this moment in which Jesus is there, and he's in the colonnade of Solomon. He's inside. He's not out there in the outer court. Maybe we're told it's winter because Jesus is inside, just to let us know. Maybe it was a little bit chilly, and he needed to not be out there, but instead was in a more intimate setting. So the Jews, they gather around him, and it's the same question they've been asking him time and time again. It's almost like Jesus has had this conversation Every time he goes to the temple, every time he interacts with a crowd, it's the same question and the same answer. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. There's this anticipation. They are waiting for the promise of the Christ to come. And there's different understandings about what this Christ will do. Indeed, most people, I believe at this time, had, had an understanding that Christ was going to come and really do away with the Roman rule over the Jewish people and instead would, would you know, reinstitute the Davidic kingdom, those promises that the Christ would sit on a throne and that the Jewish people would be free from the tyranny of other nations. They were seeking a political Christ to deliver them from their oppression and they aren't sure who Jesus is. There's this always this question, tell us who you truly are. And Jesus has said many things about who he is and how God is his father and all of these interactions they've been having. He has not shied away from revealing himself, but he has not explicitly stated to the crowd that he is indeed the Christ. He has, in more private conversations, revealed things to people about himself being the Christ, but they want him to say it Plainly. Jesus responds to their question and he says, Look, I've told you and you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus is saying, If you knew anything, you would know the answer to your question. You have seen me, you have heard the things I have said. All of the works I do are the works of God. Indeed, I am the Christ. But you're asking me to make some sort of declaration that has been plainly displayed for you time and time again. And so there's not an information problem. Jesus is telling them it's not the lack of information, a lack of works, a lack of, of you being able to see who the Christ truly is, who I truly am. You don't need me to tell you plainly, because I have told you. And the reason you do not believe is because you are not among my sheep. Jesus is bringing back this imagery that we went through in the first half of chapter 10 last week. And he repeats himself here in verse 27. And it brings to us our first point, our first question. Who are God's sheep? It's a question we asked last week, and it's the same answer we have this week, but it's important for us to revisit as we think about this passage today. Jesus says they are not his sheep. They're not among his sheep. They belong to somebody else. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So these people are not his sheep. They don't understand but this is what his sheep are like. Who are God's sheep? Jesus' sheep are the people who hear his voice. 
who have seen the works, who have listened to what he has said, they're able to understand. Hearing isn't just merely that they were you know, within earshot of what Jesus is talking about. These people are hearing his voice audibly, but they aren't understanding who he is and what he's truly saying and how he's revealing who the Christ is and what he is really here to do. So the sheep are distinct from these people in that they hear and they understand. They know the voice of their shepherd. What else are we told are characteristics of God's sheep? The second thing he says is, I know them. I know them. Jesus isn't just speaking out generically to all sorts of people, calling random people to himself, uh, giving the possibility of everybody to become a sheep. No, we're told, even in the earlier part of this passage, that he calls his sheep by name. That Jesus knows who his sheep are. That there's a specific person and specific people that he has in mind. The people that hear his voice, the people that respond to him, who understand who Jesus is, he knows them. It's no accident that they understand. It's no accident that they're in his fold. Jesus has chosen people to belong to him. Jesus has come to redeem specific people by name. Far be it from a God who has made things possible and left it up to us. No, no, no. Far greater is a God who knows us and has descended in the incarnation to become a man to redeem specific people, to die for our specific sins. God's sheep are the ones that he knows. The last thing Jesus says is that his sheep follow him. It's related to the idea of hearing and believing. You can imagine in this imagery a sheep who hears a shepherd over there but doesn't respond to his call. But the ones who Jesus knows, the ones who hear his voice and understand, they respond to his voice. They follow him. Wherever he goes, they follow. We didn't mention it much last Sunday But this is the fulfillment of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. The Lord is doing all of these things. Jesus is the shepherd who is leading his sheep and they're following him. These people who are listening to him, who are asking these questions, are not God's sheep. They don't understand. Jesus says they're not the ones that he knows. And indeed, they are not following him. We can ask this question. We can read these qualifiers. And we can be struck with a sense in which we ask the question, well, are we God's sheep? Am I one of God's sheep? Do I hear Jesus' voice? Does he know me? Am I actually following after him? We will get into a bit more of that as we go along. 
because like I said, our big idea here is that Jesus' sheep are secure in the hand of Christ. So it is important for us to understand if we are God's sheep. But these questions about our identity, these questions about whether or not we're among the fold of God, though the Apostle Peter does exhort us to make our calling and election sure, they are not the basis through which we find our security by introspection, by looking to ourselves and our responses. Indeed, our security is found in the second point of Jesus' sheep. It's the ones that he knows, the ones that he has come to call, the ones that he has come to do for them, the things they can't do for themselves. Which brings us to our our second question, and that is this, what does Jesus secure for his sheep? We're talking about security, that those who are in the hand of Jesus are, are secure, and the, they're in the Father's hand, and, and He and the Father are one. What are they secure from? What does He give them? What does He protect? Verse 28 tells us that He gives them eternal life, and they will never perish. There are different ways to think about this phrase as Jesus talks about it. He talked last week about giving us life and life abundant. There are different things that we want Jesus to secure for us. There's this imagery that's been playing out as Jesus has revealed himself as being, uh, you know, the one who gives water that wells up into eternal life or, or food or that he's the bread of life and that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. All of the things that Jesus has been using as imagery to point us to this reality. That Jesus has come for this ultimate purpose, to give his sheep eternal life, that they will never perish. What is eternal life? Sometimes we have a quick answer to that, and it's good for us to have answers to that. It is somewhat plain in that eternal life, of course, means life that never ends. In fact, it's contrasted here with never perishing. It's, it's this imagery of not facing death. And yet, when we think of God being our shepherd, too often I think we focus in on other things that we want him to secure for us. Things that are incidental to belonging to his kingdom, to being one of his sheep. We want temporary life. We want fulfilled life now. We want our happiness now. We want our pain alleviated now. We want to be healed from our infirmities. We want to be delivered from this present evil age. We want the Lord to do something now. And the idea, especially of eternality here, is that Jesus isn't promising really anything temporally. Indeed, as we see Jesus live out his life, if we are following after this shepherd, he is the one who is laying down his life, who has not come to live a life of extravagance and comfort, but instead suffering and pain and sorrow. Indeed, there is some truth that God at work in our lives, that he does hear our prayer, that through these things, indeed, he does bring us some sense of temporary 
alleviation, right? His spirit is at work in us. We can die more and more to sin and live more and more unto righteousness, that God does hear our prayers, that there is hope that he will intervene. And yet these are secondary causes to being in his kingdom. They aren't primary, and they aren't promised. What Jesus promises us is ultimate. It's eternal. If we want to understand this imagery of eternal life, we can do a bit of a survey. There are different ways in which we want to do um, good theology, and uh, one of them is called systematic theology, where you talk about what the whole Bible says about a topic, which is good. There's another category, it's called biblical theology, which you know sounds similar, but it's a little more focused, and that's to say, what does the Gospel of John say about eternal life? When John uses this phrase, what does he say? All of the times that Jesus has said it and John has written it down to put it together in this unified way, we have to assume there's, there's continuity between all of the phrases in which he uses it. And so we'll do a quick survey about eternal life of John. I think it's helpful for us because it begins to focus in what's required of those who are his sheep, how we can know if we are sheep, and really the ultimate hope Jesus has come to bring us. And that it's not just this one verse. John 3, 3, 15 and 16, whoever believes in him, the Son, has eternal life. So whoever believes is given life. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son does not see life. And the wrath of God remains on him. So there's a contrast here of not only those who believe are given eternal life, but those who do not believe will not see life, but instead they are left in the state of judgment. Jesus, as he talks about bringing eternal life, is not just merely talking about us continuing on in the life that we already have. Instead, he's talking about removing us from the state of guilt before God. Jesus talks about eternal life being water, as he spoke to the woman at the well, making it never thirsty. It would well up in our heart to eternal life. He says that when we are out gathering, we are gathering fruit for eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death into life. This imagery of eternal life and not perishing requires us to have an understanding of our current status. Because we have to have a longing for the thing in which Jesus is providing. There are times in which we can become very numb to the imagery of death. Depends on maybe how youthful we are and how healthy we might be and maybe the status of our loved ones around us. 
There's a sense in which even as we face death, as we know an inevitable thing is coming, as somebody is coming to die, we, we, we can begin to prepare ourselves, but it is only in the moment after that we begin to really feel its pain. We live in a very sanitized life where death is put into rooms and professionals keep it clean and away from us. Indeed, we don't want to live in the face of death each day. And yet, it is that backdrop through which these words bring life. When our mortality is before us, perhaps this pandemic has not struck too close to home for you yet, but I know it has struck close to home for many. And it unmasks for us our ultimate need, and Jesus is making promises here to meet those ultimate needs. That even in the face of death itself, his sheep are secure. we think about eternal life, it's also not a future reality. Think about the word eternity. It has always existed and it will always exist. It is, a, it is a status change. We have passed from death to life is what Jesus says in John chapter 5. It is a status change from being under judgment and death to being in God's fold of his sheep. But ultimately, Jesus defines this for us in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, And this is eternal life. Here's the definition. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is talking to the Father. And he's saying that he has, the Father has given him these people that they might have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they would know him. That they would know who God is. That they would, as our first point, be a sheep whom God knows. And they know God. The one true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what Jesus has come to promise. Eternal life, not just continuing on in our own mere existence, but that we would be transferred into this reality, that we would know who God is, that he would know who we are, that we would live with him. This is eternal life. This is what Jesus is promising to secure. This is the reality that is in his hands that he is promising to his sheep. The end of chapter 20, I mean verse 28 tells us that no one will snatch us out of our, no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Brings us to our our third 
point. Before we get to it, it's, it's this question, where do we look for, for our security? Where ought we to look for this security? How can we be sure that we are those who have transferred from death to life, that we have eternal life and will not perish? How do we know if we are God's sheep? Are we really hearing his voice? Are we really following him? If we're looking to ourselves, well, that's a treadmill that I don't know we'll ever get off of. And so this last question, it's caught up a little bit in the end of this passage, and we'll come back to it in a second. But Jesus here is saying that we are secure because we are in his hand, and we're also in the Father's hand, and he and the Father are one. Jesus is equating himself with God. Again, he has done this before. And it has caused the same reaction as it did before. And that is this, that the Jews pick up stones to stone him to death. Because it's blasphemy for a man to call himself God. Jesus sees their anger and he says, Well, hey, I've been showing you good works from God. Which of them are you stoning me for? And they say, No, you have made yourself equal to God. We are stoning you for blasphemy. And then Jesus enters into this defense, which is a bit difficult for us to understand on its face. It's from Psalm chapter 28. Jesus says, uh, even your law calls you gods. And Psalm 82 talks about how those who have received God's word are are gods. They are gods among the people. They are representatives of the word of God. It's kind of a weird category we don't often think about. I think it might be more helpful for us as those who maybe are less familiar with the Psalms and some of the imagery of the Old Testament and instead to think more about uh, maybe an Old Testament prophet who would come and say, Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. And when a prophet came to a king and said, The Lord says this, He wasn't coming in his own authority. In fact, he was claiming that the words he was speaking were indeed the very words of God and carried the authority and the judgment of God, and they required perfect obedience. You could say he was a prophet who was equating himself with God. And yet we know that there's nothing wrong with that. Because God is the one who had sent him. Indeed, he was the voice of God. The prophet was the voice of God to the people of Israel. And so Jesus says this is an unprecedented for somebody to be a representative of God, delegated from God, sent from God. And really what has happened here is they've gotten it half right. Because Jesus does go further than what the prophets did. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus isn't merely a prophet. Jesus is claiming to be divine in the same way that God the Father is divine. So they get it right that he is equating himself with God. But what they get wrong is that Jesus isn't equating himself as a competing God. 
that's what real blasphemy is. Well, you worship Yahweh, but I worship Baal. My God is better than your God. And instead, Jesus is doing something much different. Jesus is equating himself with God as part of the one true God, not in competition with him, but the one whom God has sent, who is consecrated, who is showing us what God is truly like. He is the one who's able to promise eternal life because he himself is the giver of life. And as we think about this question of security, it's important for us to understand who Jesus truly is. Because this last question that we have before us, it's the question we all must wrestle with all of the time. And that is, where do we look for our security? How do we know if these things are indeed true? How can we know that Jesus is who he says he is? How can we know that we have eternal life or that we are in God's sheepfold? Do we look to ourselves for our assurance? As I said before, we will never have assurance if we look to our own actions, our own hearts, for assurance of what God has done in the world. Instead, it is the reason we come to this book. Because we must look to the way in which God has revealed himself, to actual historic facts, to Jesus Christ himself. You see, that's what the life, death, and resurrection truly speaks to us as believers in Christ. That though he speaks to us and we hear from his word, He's not just some mere man, but that he lived this perfect life, that there's this historic reality that this man Jesus lived and he said these things, which is great, as long as they're true. And there's all of these claims about who he is that he makes about himself, and we wonder, how can we know? In fact, he talks about the way in which we come into life is through his death as sinful people. We think about this idea of hearing and following. Guess what? I don't know that I always hear God's word perfectly, and I know that I don't follow it perfectly. And so if I'm looking to my own standing in God's kingdom by my hearing and following, I have no standing. And yet through Christ's death, we see what kind of shepherd he truly is. The one who has taken upon himself our sin, our inability to hear, our unwillingness to hear, our unwillingness to follow. But it is applied to those whom he knows. And indeed, if he's just a man that lived and said great things and then died, well, we have no security then either because how is he any different than anybody else? But this is where we find our security, that Jesus Christ was no mere man, and he didn't die a mere death, but that on the third day he rose again to bring about our security, our assurance. And so when we come in times of uncertainty, when we wonder if it is all true, 
Are we God's sheep? What are we secured with? Do we have eternal life? How do we know that what Jesus says is true? How can we have assurance that we are in his kingdom? When we hear his voice and we respond to it, how do we know it benefits us at all? It's because the tomb was empty. That the eternal life that we have is because of the resurrection of Jesus. We don't just enter into the ministry of a smart man. No, we enter into Christ's death. We pass from death into life. The historic facts of the Christian faith cannot be dismissed. They are our very assurance that what Christ has said is true. That through Christ's resurrection, he has secured for us our standing in his kingdom. That we are in his hand. That he is seated on that throne in heaven, bringing about all things for his people. That he knows us. That he calls us to himself. And that that work, whether or not we are feeling faithful in the moment, that it's not dependent on our actions, but that it was bought with a price and secured with a miracle. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and then takes up his life again so that his sheep can rest securely. All of these passages to do with eternal life in John's gospel, they really call us to one thing. They call us to belief. Those who believe in me will have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. Brothers and sisters, we are mere sheep in God's kingdom. May we hear his voice. May we believe in his name. And as we have doubts, may we look to the cross and may we look to the empty tomb for our security. Not our own performance, but the performance that was done on our behalf. May that be our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ, that it is our sure hope that though we face death and pain in this life, we look ahead to the day when we will be delivered from this evil age, that even now we have communion with you through the life of your Son, Help us to find our security in his work. Help us to find our security in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to believe. Help us to be comforted that we are in your hand. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.